0: Hey everybody, I'm Ben Stringer, Associate Pastor at the Venues, and welcome to Bar Church. (laughs) This isn't exactly Bar Church, but last night when we tried to broadcast our music and our message from downtown, our Wi-Fi was not exactly cooperative. So Spencer showed up with me uh, to church the next day, and we decided to tape the message for you in case you missed it. So, this is the Bar Church message from our Battlefield location. We're in this series called No Room at the Inn, and we're just starting the series. This is the first message in that series. And we'll continue this series at Bar Church um, for the next two Thursdays. Each week, this series starts from the framework of the story that so many of us will hear and share and have heard throughout our lives of Jesus coming to be born. And there are two descriptions in the Gospels that are used to understand, oh, I guess the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus being born. We're going to focus on the story that comes from Luke, and this is the framework. This is the groundwork for this entire series. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, and I think it's the first six verses. Luke chapter 1 is actually a background on John and his family and Jesus and his family. But we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, reading like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn a son she wrapped him in clothes cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him. now this last sentence is really the sentence that we're focusing on There was no room available for them. We're focusing on this story and specifically the idea that as Christ comes into this world as Jesus, there is simply no room for him here. We're focusing on this both as a principle of the facts that we understand or believe to be present as Jesus is arriving, But it's also a metaphor that Jesus shows up and we just don't have any room for him. We just don't have time. This idea that Jesus comes into the world uninvited and that we're all so busy and so many things occupying our time and our space is discussed by Thomas Merton in an essay that he wrote years ago. Part of that essay reads like this. His place, speaking of Jesus, is with those who do not belong, who are rejected by power because they are regarded as weak, those who are discredited, who are denied the status of persons, tortured, exterminated, with those for whom There is no room. Christ is present in this world. He is mysteriously present in those for whom there seems to be nothing but the world at its worst. And so Merton's exposition here is that Christ comes into the world as Jesus, and we have no room for him. And just as there's no room here for him, he takes place and resides with people who are in this world that the world has no room for. That as Jesus comes into his personhood, the people that he aligns himself with are those people that the world has really put into the margins. The downcast, the outcast, the sinners, as the world sees it. And so we see this framework of Jesus, coming into a place where there's no room for him. And we see him connecting with people who are also seen as though there's just no room for them. And each week we're going to use a kind of second verse from the Gospels to attach to this discussion about Jesus coming into the world and us not having any space for him. So I want to move from that framework to this part of Matthew, which is going to serve as our specific reading for tonight's message. In Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus calling Matthew, identified in the text as a tax collector, to be part of his crew. And that doesn't go unnoticed. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I have always heard this verse in Matthew, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, as a kind of beautiful verse in which we see Jesus reaching out to those of us who are broken and restoring us. I think there is something really beautiful about that. But I'm gonna challenge you today To question whether or not this idea of brokenness has extended from this place where we see Jesus offering restoration to those of us who are not in alignment spiritually with God. And whether or not we've also taken this to mean that Jesus is at times healing people in the Bible who are physically, in our eyes, broken, who are physically deficient. So for example, when Jesus heals someone who is blind, do we see him as fixing this person? And if we do, do we see that person as someone who needs fixing? If Jesus heals someone who's deaf, do we see him as fixing that person who has a hearing impairment? And if we do, And do we see that person with a hearing impairment as someone who's not 100% who they should be or could be, not 100% able? I think that if we're honest, we'd have to admit that maybe not in this church, although we're not excluded from criticism in this regard either, a lot of teachers in the Christian faith, have taught that physical disability, that disease, um, that hardships of many kind, are a teaching tool of God. That God afflicts us with these conditions to teach us something, maybe to punish us. Uh, I do not believe that, but. Um, maybe you do maybe you know people who do and i want to show respect for where you are in your faith while at the same time maybe challenging you to think about that and if you haven't thought about it before if you haven't thought well maybe i do see jesus fixing the blind (laughs) maybe i do see jesus as Healing the deaf as fixing the deaf. I want to really challenge you with generosity and humility today to step out of that framework because I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do, and I think maybe we've made some assumptions that are ableist in our own theology. Yeah. Ableism. I think it has pervaded some of our theology without us even knowing it, pervaded our culture without us even knowing that it's happening in part maybe because people who are disabled people who have a disability i should say really haven't been given enough of a voice haven't been allowed to advocate for themselves and been included and been given a seat at the table uh, enough i want to look at what ableism is, and I want to explore whether or not our theology has promoted this idea of ableism. Let's just explore it together. And if this is your first time thinking about this, I can almost promise you, this will challenge you to think about the views that you have held. Understanding the definition of ableism, then the question arises, well, where is ableism? What exactly does it look like in society? It can take all kinds of different forms really and it's very insidious because I think most ableism by people is what I would call non-intentional ableism, not intentional ableism. But one of the ways that we see it manifest is by the framing of a disability either as tragic or inspirational in news stories, movies, and other popular forms of media. And you may say to yourself, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with showing someone who has a disability is doing something inspirational or being inspirational to us? Well, there was a show that used to be on television called Speechless, and this show was loved in my family. It was canceled, much to the dismay of everyone in my family. But it was unique because it had a leading character playing someone with a disability, and that actor has the disability um, of the character that they were portraying. And there's a scene in one of the shows that might shed some light on how this use of people with disabilities as inspirational can be um, offensive to those with Disabilities. So here's a little clip from speeches. Hey, are you friends with a Donald Bronson? Who? That's what I thought. He gave a whole speech about how you're his hero. He said you're the bravest guy he knows. You make him a better person. Now I'm someone else's speech. Stupid INS inspiration porn. What's that? It's a portrayal of people with disabilities as one-dimensional saints who only exist to warm the hearts and open the minds of able-bodied people. I blame Tiny Tim. It's terrible, but it's great for winning essay contests, damn it. I'm over here trying to sell Albert Einstein. Hey, it's not Donald's fault you picked Einstein. Come on, man. Play to win. Let's talk to Donald. Sounds good. Uh, Einstein is my hero. He was a lowly patent clerk. (laughs) Come on, dude. Yes, he said the word inspiration porn. It's this idea that we um, would put someone with a disability out front to kind of feel good and to use them in this way. I'm not suggesting that every time we highlight someone who has a disability for an accomplishment, that we're engaging in that process, but I think we need to be mindful and we need to be careful. Um, And we need to do it with consistency and equivalency or or equality, I should say, Um, because it can slip by us. And you may be sitting there saying, well, I've I've never done that. I don't really know what you're talking about. So I'm going to give you an example then of a situation that is complicated in my mind, but a commercial that was run within the last few years that some disability advocates said was um, demonstrative of this very problem. Uh, Not that long ago, Microsoft ran this inspirational commercial and it looked like this. Let's take a look. So what's wrong with that commercial? Well, um, I'm, I just want you to keep an open mind about this. Some disability advocates, uh, and uh, one of them living in my house, my eldest son Spencer, did not like this commercial because they felt like it was a celebration of someone with a disability doing something that we wouldn't be celebrating if any of the other kids in the room had done it. That it wouldn't really make sense to have a commercial where any other kid in that room maybe set a high score or was doing what the main character of that commercial was doing. And so the question becomes, are we celebrating something that we wouldn't celebrate in other people, and if we are in typically able people, and if we are, then are we in a way lowering the bar to be celebratory among people with disabilities, and does that disenfranchise people with disabilities? I think it's a great question, and if I'm being honest with you, it's not a question I thought of when I first saw that commercial. I loved that commercial but then again I'm not someone who sees that commercial from the vantage point of living and having the experience of each day um, being a member of a community of people with disabilities and so I've thought a lot about that and tried to be more mindful about how maybe this idea can can creep in where someone with a disability is being used or marginalized even as we celebrate their accomplishments. One of the other ways that ableism can creep into our lives is the casting of non-disabled actors to play disabled characters in plays or movies or TV shows or commercials. And folks, I mean, this happens all the time. This is the norm in Hollywood as best as I can tell. And I grew up in the theater. Um, Acting and performing was a big part of my youth. And I have debated people on this issue for a number of years because I've always felt like actors should be able to portray anybody but taking those roles from people who actually live those lives, I can see now is, is meaningful and it is important. Think about this. The Big Bang Theory, House, The Good Doctor, these shows celebrate, these shows are grounded in the lives of people who are neurodivergent, but they're not played by people who are neurodivergent. Is that because we think that people who are neurodivergent can't act? Or that the schedules will be too hard on them? Or that the expectations are too rigorous? You know, it wasn't that long ago that women weren't allowed to run the marathon in the Olympics because we didn't think they could handle it. It wasn't that long ago that people of color weren't allowed to play with whites in sports like baseball or basketball because of stereotypes that we had about their behavior, their disposition. It wasn't that long ago that people of color were being excluded from management and coaching and high profile positions that required what we considered to be thoughtfulness or academic enterprise because we had stereotypes that quite frankly were archaic and demeaning and without any scientific basis or basis in experience and they're just being dismantled. Most recently, the musician Sia was criticized for not casting an actor with autism in a production that she put on called Music, and she defended that by saying that they thought about it, and thought it would just be too overwhelming and that the A more compassionate response would be to to let someone who's neurotypical play someone who's neurodivergent. Mm. Are we pigeonholing people still today in different ways? And is ableism one of those ways that we are doing it, taking opportunities, taking the opportunity for inclusion and equality, for access away from people who would be served by it. There is this statement piece of Jesus in Luke 4 when he is in the temple and he basically makes a pronouncement about who he is and why he's coming. And he stands up in the temple, he asks asks for a scroll, and he's basically reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor, which is basically a reference to the year of Jubilee. Jesus comes into this space where we have no room for him. He says, I'm here for the people that you also have no room for. The people who you have no room for in your your movies, in your TV shows. I'm here to sit with them. And this idea where he says that he's here to give recovery of sight for the blind can be a tripping point for us because maybe we see him as fixing the blind person, that the blind person's not already whole or complete because they don't have sight. I want to ask you just to think about that with the kind of generosity that Christ shows us and ask if you really think that's what he could mean. Because I'll tell you, most of the time that Jesus is talking about folks who can't see and folks who are blind, He's talking about people who are spiritually blind. And even if he is here and as part of his mission, wants to help people who are blind physically see, I think we've got to see that in a lens that looks at the world as it existed 2,000 years ago, where being blind really did create obstacles for your inclusion. He doesn't want that. In John chapter 9, this kind of issue comes up because as he and the disciples are going along, verse 1 tells us that he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man is blind or his parents, that he was born blind? They're caught in this trap of what their culture and their theology has told them, this old way of thinking that this is either a punishment for what this person did or a punishment for what their parents did. And Jesus' reply is, it's neither. You're going to have to think about this in a whole new way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. I know that we're enamored with the miracles of Jesus This has been a long-standing tradition in the Christian church that we love to point to the proof of who Jesus is by what he can do in the supernatural. But, you know, there are times where Jesus seems to kind of be fed up with that. In John chapter 4, Jesus is asked by a Roman official to heal his son. And Jesus says, you know, it seems like unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. I wanna encourage us to see the work of Jesus as one in which he seeks to restore all of us, but not one in which we think he's fixing people who are unable to see, hear, or walk, that he already sees they are 100% human. There's an author by the name of Amy Kenny. she's also a professor of English, who wrote this article for Sojourners called, Can the Church View Disabled Bodies as Jesus' Body? And I want to read an excerpt from this article that she wrote because I just thought it was really powerful. The church is supposed to be the hope of the world, ushering in new creation where all people had dignity and value simply because they are image bearers of the Alpha and the Omega. But the church peddles ablest ideas in devious ways. It proclaims to be pro-life, but mirrors the world's messaging that productivity and health are drivers of worth. It weaponizes prayer as a foot soldier in its ablest theology, Reducing God to a slimy vending machine, churning out miracles upon request. Kind of sounds like John Ford. It limits our imaginations for how abundant life should look, confining prosperity and happiness to a singular mode of living. It avoids the discomfort of lived experience by constantly promising a completeness yet to come. Oh, you'll be whole one day, Amy, or you'll be running in heaven says as though I am not already redeemed and sanctified with the mind of Christ, as if the Holy Spirit doesn't already dwell in my disabled body. But the worst is the pity. The way the people's heads tilt and their tone of voice alters to reveal their embarrassment over my body, as though they don't know where to fix their eyes when I'm using my wheelchair or my cane. Pity always reinforces a power structure between humans. It's far more condescending than its cousin, compassion. Compassion seeks to meet people in their suffering and take it on with them. Pity feels sorry for someone with little care for how to thwart their future suffering. I don't need people's pity or crocodile tears. I need the church to dismantle its ablest practices and to see me as fully human. This has been difficult for me, and maybe it's difficult for you. So I hope that you've made it this far with me. (laughs) And I hope that we can stop and we can use this as a point to look back on our own theology. I saw this tweet by Carly Finley the other day, and she said, I gently educated a friend about ableist language tonight, including some offering them some alternatives. I'm so sorry, I had no idea. Thanks for educating me, was the reply. And that's how it's done, gratitude and no defensiveness. So may we learn something new this week about ourselves, about our brothers and sisters, and maybe even about Christ theology, and let us try to look at people, to be with people, and understand how our language, our behavior, even sometimes our best intentions, may not be what they need. Let us listen to people to hear what they need. Let us take on this practice of growing and maybe seeing where ableism can be in our theology, being open to learning, and being taught with gratitude and no defensiveness. I hope this has given you something to think about this weekend. Uh, I'm sorry we weren't able to be there with you on Thursday night. But uh, we'll be back, and I appreciate you being with me. Thanks, guys. Have a good week.